I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> this is Spinal Tap, and we are going to be making this one a kind of sound of gonzo of tap music. So rather than the trailer, which relies heavily on the visuals of a band lost in a labyrinthine backstage area, let's launch straight in with Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You. Tonight we're gonna rock you. Tonight we're gonna rock you. With us, we have regular voice on our show, Brendan Agnew of Synapse. How do you do? And for the first time on the main show, though if you're on our Patreon, you'll remember him from the quick review of Evil Dead 2013, the author of the Midnight Movies blog, Nick Ord. Hello there. Hello. And this episode was sponsored by Kevin Vey, Dan Mayer, and Nick himself here. Usually we don't allow the commissioners on their own shows, but I've been meaning to get Nick on the main feed for a while. He was also extremely excited we were going to be covering TAP, so we're going to let that enthusiasm fuel our engine. So, 2020 has been a bad year, and we wanted to do something that would take us and our listeners away from the horror for just a little while. This was a commission show, as I said, and it is for one of the funniest films of all time. Having covered Rob Reiner's salute to fairy tale romance and dueling, we are now looking at the mockumentary against which all others are measured. Now, it's important to mention the player unknown battlegrounds to Taps Fortnite, The Ruttles All You Need Is Cash, a 1978 British production satirising The Beatles, co directed and written by Eric Idle, and itself stemming from the deadpan elements of Monty Python's Flying Circus. And while lead actor Christopher Guest would wait 14 years to begin his own stretch of exceptionally good, largely improvised mockumentaries with Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, A Mighty Wind, and For Your Consideration, all of which we strongly suggest you see, this was the one that really showed what he could do with his frequent collaborators Michael McKean, Harry Shearer, and even brief appearances from Ed Begley Jr., Paul Benedict, and the late, great Fred Willard. It's important to put this 1982 film in context and to understand where music was before and after. The Beatles, Stones, and The Who had their heyday in the mid-60s, followed by Bowie and Elton, 
almost famous, the Cameron Crowe film, which we really need to do, is set in 1973 at a time when rock bands were touring the world and elsewhere and asking themselves if rock was dying, if rock was even maybe dead already, or at least in decline as electronic music began to creep into popularity, which of course came into its own in the 80s era of synthesizers. But before that, in the late 70s, around the time disco was embraced, especially by the LGBTQ community and by people of colour, Disco and its community were also being performatively rejected by certain members of rock fandom. It's shameful if you dig into it, and I'd like to think it was only some rockers who were this level of shitty, burning disco albums in a stadium and all that. But at the same time, surely not coincidentally, segments of rock music very specifically catering to the frustrations and raw emotional responses of pale young boys in particular gave way to metal and heavy metal which incorporated garage and in some cases segued into thrash though there is that curious intersection between glam rock and disco even kiss did a disco song i am definitely not an expert in these movements i am a lapsed metal fan a lifelong lover of rock music who learned a shameful amount about musical genres from watching beavis and butthead But I can at least say that This Is Spinal Tap perfectly recreates that sense of overcompensation, bewilderment, confused sexual impulses and flirtations with macabre imagery that being into metal, which I was in my teens, constitutes. I was into Metallica and Aerosmith, and while the latter stemmed from rhythm and blues, Aerosmith rode the rock train through a higher level of popularity in the 90s compared with their time in the 70s, principally off the back of a glut of groupie-baiting songs detailing how much vocalist Steven Tyler just loves to eat ass. Now, some of the best metal contains a healthy streak of self-deprecation and the ability to laugh at how preposterous the album cover and van art with its serpents, betitted valkyries, rock zombies and giant skulls can all be. Iron Maiden is an ideal example of that absence of self-seriousness. Metallica? Less so. In fact, to illustrate quite how perfectly this movie not only satirises backwards, delivering a painfully accurate parody of the bands that had come before... It also moves forwards. Metallica themselves seem like a living tribute act to Spinal Tap, releasing a black album knowing full well how ludicrous the Nanmore Black Smell the Glove cover was nine years earlier. They recorded their S&M album with the San Francisco Philharmonic knowing full well that this was an ambition of David St. Hubbins. And in their 2004 documentary Some Kind of Monster, icy vocalist James Hetfield and fiery drummer Lars Ulrich spent the time at one another's throats while placid lead guitarist Kirk Hammett attempted to keep the peace in his role as lukewarm water. It was during their period of dealing with finding a replacement bassist because they lost their first, Ron McGovney, due to tensions in the band. They lost their second, Cliff Burton, in a real-life tragic bus crash. And they lost their third, Jason Newsted, who went off to make his own metal group with Blackjack and Hookers. Eventually, they settled on Robert Trujillo, who thankfully, to this day, has not yet exploded on stage. In their documentary, they seek group counselling and fall apart, argue bitterly, and eventually resolve their tensions. 
It is a testament to the accuracy and authenticity of This Is Spinal Tap that it actually feels like it really happened in the same way, that somehow Tap are a band created without comedy as their main aim, that they are so beloved and well-known within film, comedy and music circles that they in fact eclipse a high percentage of real music acts, quote-unquote. This Is Spinal Tap exists as a cautionary tale to musicians. Let yourself get too much like these guys. Let the mask of fame eat into your face to this degree and you will exist as a parody of your dreams of sex, drugs and rock and roll or failing that just the sex and the drugs so I figured the best way we could cover this one would be to talk about the characters each in turn and to use appropriate key moments of the film to illustrate what sort of a person they are and there's several major movements and talking points to explore as we go through. There's the musical growth curve of the band from skiffle through psychedelic to metal, which I believe can be charted. Their relationship with sex and women and how that reflects in their relationship with the audience. And in turn, their audience's relationship with sex and women. Their inevitable decline and how that is reflected by, or possibly as a result of, their wandering the world obliviously, not really knowing what they're doing. And of course, the romantic entanglement between Janine, Nigel, and the blonde bombshell they want the ear of so badly, Dave. And we shall start with him, David St. Hubbins. What impression do you folks get as he goes on this journey from New York, New York, to Japan? Well, I'm, I'm sure he'd feel much worse if he wasn't under such heavy sedation for a start. Um, I, find, <laughs> I, I find... Okay, every time we do a Spinal Tap quote, folks, take a shot. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think the weight of the world is on his shoulders to uh, hold all this together. Um, he, he feels like the, uh, the, the kind of reluctant father of the group, that he's trying... He's incompetent and can't do it, but he's, at the same time, he's striving to try and hold all these ridiculous disparate elements together as best he can yeah but you're not as confused as he is yeah he's he almost, yeah you're right he does kind of almost treat nigel if not like a son then definitely like a brother who he's very close to dave seems to me to be um for want of a better word the one with the drive and the if not the talent the exactly vision? but the the yeah the vision the the lead mm. who uh, has nigel in comparison does of... need to be aimed yeah exactly <laughs> exactly he needs to be corralled a little bit more i i can't say dave is the stable one because that's derek but mm. dave seems a little bit more with it a little bit more together a little bit more able to interact with the rest of the human race than nigel does shall we say <laughs> so is he, he's the ice isn't he in the in derek's uh, comparison so, yeah. yeah he's also got this odd balance of semi-self-awareness because these people clearly don't necessarily belong in the world of rock and roll superstardom and the the movie is very aware of that it's not cruel about it but it's sort of, especially the way they they flash back to to the different eras of the band and aping different bands aesthetics and musical stylings to chart the evolution of spinal tap uh like this this is like this very odd evolution for this band to get to this level of popularity. And David St. Hubbins is the only one who seems to realize, like, wait a minute, we're probably not actually talented enough to be here. <laughs> Stop wasting my time. You know what I want. You know what I need. Oh, maybe you don't. Do I have to come back? 
which the the others are, are just absolutely just they're they're just there to to like you said you know either need to be aimed or they're just kind of off in their own little world like um, like there's there are smalls but he seems even though he's not an especially like it, one of the things coming back to this that weirded me out was realizing how young these guys seem compared to the last time I watched this movie mm-hmm. <laughs> They feel like they've they've been through a lot, but they're also not exactly old men yet. But they they're at this very. They're supposed to be pushing forty. So if they're young, how the fuck old am I? (laughs) Exactly, and and again, like Dave seems to be the only one who realizes that like we're kind of getting a bit old to be living as hard and fast as we sometimes do. Yeah. I think he's the one that it matters the most too. He's the one with the you know the heart on his sleeve. It's his band and he loves it. Kind of explains why that you know they've if you, you trace the musical journey, he wants to be loved, he wants to be adored, so he wants to do whatever will make people love him and his band, which is why he's prepared to try such, you know, de- increasingly desperate gambits for, for love and attention like dressing up as star signs and you know, the, the, all these crazy ideas I think it's him that needs the love and wants it and uh, more than the rest the he definitely also that... wants recognition he wants to be higher than the puppets on the billing yeah and the, yeah. the irony is that he's actually got more to go to if the band flakes than everybody else he has a wife he's as you would I thought he said, I don't need a woman, I won't take me no wife. Um, but I think there's a bit in the deleted scenes that he has a son as well. So yeah. he's got family, he's got things to move on with if the band ceases to be. Yeah. Side note, just because you mentioned him, he's got this little punk rock kid son who's this little sweet guy who comes to meet him unexpectedly during a show. And I was like, this is an extra from Sing Street. I was going to say, you said he looks punk. I was like, he looks like Elvis Costello. Okay, right. (laughs) Like, he he looks new romantic. Yes, thank you. Uh, And uh, David's criticising him because he's like, the last last time I saw you, you had a a full head of blonde hair and now look at you. And it's like, yeah, he's, he's deliberately dressing in a way that will piss off his parents the way that kids in the 80s did. You have to rebel against whatever your parents have and if that is sex, drugs and rock and roll then um, it's either this or the library. (laughs) (laughs) He does actually look as though he's duck waxed his hair with Tipex. The riddle of the model. Just a quick aside there. This is is Elvis Costello who once came third in an Elvis Costello lookalike. Okay, so David, um, he has a weird way of approaching arguments. He's kind of, he, he actually is kind of like accommodating. And I think what I like most about him uh, is that he attempts to be philosophical a lot of the time. And he's like, well, if you turn this around and look at it, it's, it's actually quite profound. 
but then much fucking perspective, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but then, uh, when the heat starts happening, he just starts screaming because he can't actually assert his control. And I feel like that is exacerbated, made worse by other people attempting to wrest control from him around it. So it feels like he's, you know, he can see the way he wants things to go, and then Ian and Janine very specifically start grappling over things, and Nigel makes it worse. Yeah, I think that I think one of the reasons that David struggles with that that sort of period of the band's development, shall we say, is that, like I said, he's the one with all the drive, but he needs to be steering himself. And if other people are trying to steer him, he gets very, very frustrated. I mean, I sympathise, but it's it's there. I think he's also, uh, of all of them, he's the most aware uh, of image and how they he doesn't want the band to look silly. And he, he's aware that they're kind of... I believe of... that ship has sailed. <laughs> <laughs> The, the treading water imagery of the, the idea that tap aren't really going anywhere that's clearly getting to him and he you know while he will try new things he is is very guarded about uh, the band being denigrated or the, or the band being made fun of or, or made to look bad well he instinctively embraces the dramatic yeah. the problem is that they have tried dramatic repeatedly and something goes wrong and then they look stupid mm. It's it, the, the line between dramatic and ridiculous is a very fine one and I think he is acutely aware of the fact that they keep getting their toes over that line but you can always tell when he likes something when he's actually happy most of the best moments happen when they're on stage mm. they're playing well and they're they're actually in harmony with each other. Yeah. That really seems to when be what Dave blood. wants. That, yeah. that he, he's just like, right, this now we're actually doing it. You can see when he smiles mm. that uh, you know mm. he, he he's finally hit that point that he's chasing. Mm. Okay, so Nigel Tufnell, his uh, his lifelong companion that they they grew up with, they, they were the lovely lads originally, and then they're the Thamesmen and the the new originals. Sorry, they were the originals first. Then another band came along called the Originals, so they were the new Originals. <laughs> then the Thamesmen, and then Spinal Tap. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, Nigel, I think I've, I've put wow factor in my notes because Nigel tends to say things that might not actually be true, but because he heard them, they must be true in his head. Nigel is a repository for alternative facts. Luckily, he's relatively easy to dissuade with rationality. I wish there were more like him. He's also quite a sensitive little artist, and he's become accustomed to being pampered. What exactly? Well, uh... What, I some, mean... Well, no, there's some problems here. Uh, I don't even know where to start. All right, this... Sound uh, check? What's, what, no, what, no, what's no, 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 this, this... Look, 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 there's a little problem with the, uh... Look, this, this miniature bread, it's like... I've been working with this now for about half an hour, and I can't figure out... Let's say I want... Mm -hmm. bite, right? You got this? You'd like bigger bread? Exactly. I yeah. don't understand how... You could it's like fold a... this, then. I mean, you could well, fold no, it. then it's half the size. No, not that... the bread. You could fold the meat. Yeah, yeah but then, it, then it breaks bread. up, it breaks no, no, apart no, no, no. like you this. You put it on the bread like this, see? But then if then you keep it's... folding it, it keeps breaking. Well, keep and then you'll, everything has to be folded. And yeah. then it's this. And I don't want this. I want large bread so that I can put this... Right. So then it's like this. But this doesn't work because then it's all... He is a little bit of a prima donna, though, sometimes, yes. No, actually, no I, th I think they said that he was a regular donna on the uh, commentary. <laughs> um, but what I find very, I don't know if I'm okay to, uh, to go ahead with this. Go for what's it. Interesting with, what's interesting with Nigel, for me, is he's genuinely mercurial, is that for all his um, sort of foolishness and the silly things he says, there is genuine talent there. Which is kind of underlined by when when he leaves the band, they just can't perform because oh, yeah. he's so he, they can't do without him. That's why they embark on the on the jazz odyssey. And as as ridiculous as like his guitar solos are, even though I love the moment when he stops in the middle of that solo to tune the violin that he's scraping against. The <laughs> <laughs> Almost really, perfect. Just tune it a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Look at moments like when he's um, when he's talking about the, um, the you know the, the saddest of all keys and Mozart and Bach. It's a Mac piece oh, and ends up calling beautiful. it "Lick My Love Pub." But yeah. the tune is genuinely beautiful. He's <laughs> playing is. actually a really good piece of music, mm -hmm. and just <laughs> so there is actually skill and talent there that he does his best to undercut at every opportunity. That particular moment, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, the the "Lick My Love Pump" is is not just a a really good example of how Reiner portrays these characters, especially. Um, uh, like especially with David and Nigel, they're they're the butt of so many jokes. But Reiner is very careful to also kind of 
revel in the the brighter spots of their humanity. They're they're definitely goofballs. They're not very smart, and they're only occasionally talented. Um, but when they when they do bust out something like that, and and Nigel's just kind of like sitting there playing the piano, like it's it is really genuinely sweet. And the the way that Rob Reiner directs it is you you get enough space to live in the world. A so that the lick my love punt punchline just lands like a meteor because the, he's giving you so much road to get to that joke, but also so that by the time you get to the end of the movie, you actually do sort of care about these goofballs. Like there's there's an empathy that sneaks up on you, and it especially manifests in Nigel whenever he leaves. And there's and you and you do. It, it's not just that they they talk about how like night they can't play him any of the their best songs without Nigel there, but also like you you do genuinely feel like you've lost a part of that, uh, of, of those dynamics because Absolutely. they're just so much, they're, they're just so much fun to watch, like bounce off of each other, even when they're being complete <laughs> planks. It's very fun. Well, when he's invited back on stage at the end, I've watched it twice in the last couple of days, just pre- prepping up for it. The first one just for fun, the second time to have a think about it and make some notes. That still makes my arm hairs stand up when he comes back on stage at the end. It's a it's a proper <laughs> emotional moment. It's, it's not just a not just a gag a minute airplane style film. There's a, there's heart in there with these guys, their, their their relationship. We came like babies from a home across the sea to see. America and the people opened up their arms to welcome us to America. We came like children from a far and distant land to see America and the golden sun of freedom. Build it down to us in America.
I think that's, I mean, folding in Christopher Guest's uh, work with this as well, I think that's what does it for me about mockumentaries, for them to be... Uh, for them to be funny they also have to be dramatic they also have to be genuine and I think this is such a good example of that yeah well they, they play it so straight don't they mm. and um, like and, but obviously we haven't mentioned yet that the part there are only 12 pages of script and the film was pretty much 100% improvised which just blows my mind with some of the stuff they were coming out with um and yes, yeah, how they can get that warmth and heart across, and drop so many gags one after another, um, is improvisation at its absolute best. Mm. I think, though, my favourite Nigel moment—it has to be the bit where he's on stage and he's doing the solo, and he gets down on his back, and then can't, can't get, get back up, up again. again. <laughs> <laughs> but he's so dedicated to playing, he, he just, doesn't drop the guitar. He's just absolutely. And then on. when the when the stagehand comes out to help him. He's, he makes him turn him round a couple of times first because <laughs> he's got to complete the move before he can get up. Do you play all... I mean, do you actually play all these, or...? Well, I play them and I cherish them. Mm-hmm. This is at the top of the heat right here. There's no question about it. Look at the look at the flame on that one. Yes. Look, I mean, it's just... It's quite unbelievable. This, this one is just... Uh, it's perfect. 1959. Uh, you know, it just... You can... Uh, listen. How much is this? Just listen for a minute. I'm the not, sustain, listen to it. I'm not hearing anything. You would, though, if it were playing, because yeah. it really, it's famous for its sustain. I mean, you can yeah. just hold it. Well, I mean, so you'd have to... Ah, you can go, go and have a bite. No, you'd still yeah. be hearing that one. Yeah. Can you hold it sustain? Sure. This one, this, of course, is a custom three pickup. Paul, this is my radio unit. Oh, so I, I, I see strap you... this, this piece on. You know, right down in here when I'm on stage. It's oh, so a wireless. Wireless, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I can play without all the mucky muck. You can run anywhere on exactly stage with that. Oh, this is special too. It's a, look, see, still got the uh, the old tagger on it. So you never even played it. See? You just bought it. Don't touch it. I, don't well, touch I, I it. Wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to no, touch it. No, don't touch it. I was it. just pointing at it. I, well, don't point even. Don't it even point. Be, no, it can't be played. Never. I mean, I, can I, I look I, at no. it? No. No, you've seen Don't enough of that one. This is a top to uh, you know what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because if you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to eleven. Look, right across the board, oh. eleven, oh, eleven, and most of eleven, these and then amps go up to ten. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not ten. You see, most most blokes, you know, be playing at ten. You're on ten here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on ten on your guitar. Where can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere. Exactly. What we do is, if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? I'll put it up to eleven. Eleven. Exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make ten louder and make ten be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to eleven.
Somebody said that Judas Priest was a major uh, influence on them. I was, I was trying to get it pinned down to um, which bands really contributed to this. Because you have to study someone to really get that sense of authenticity. Saxon was mentioned as well. Uh, Iron Maiden released their first album in 1980, so that's a little, like, like pretty close to the wire. But again, like, like I said, uh, Bruce Dickinson and company have a, a really excellent attitude regarding how silly metal is and and they kind of have that sense of humour about themselves especially and I cannot stress and the fact that they're British helps I was just about to say if they're British it's just the accent and the image it just doesn't blend hmm A lot of this actually stemmed from, uh, as in the idea, Christopher Guest was just in a hotel lobby, sitting down, waiting for a cab or something, and a, a rock group were at the front desk, and one guy was like, where's my bass? Have you seen my bass? To the concierge, and I'll, I'll see if I can find your bass. I'm sure I didn't leave it in the room, but maybe I did leave it in the room. And this conversation went on forever and ever, with the concierge just trying to humour and be polite to this uh, this band. You were going back and forth and making it worse. And it's like, okay, at what point is practicality going to rear its ugly head at this stage? And um, and, and, and Spinal Tap kind of grew out of that. The idea that bands would be a little bit helpless and would like the, the, the bands themselves would need to be kind of babysat through their careers and that's where you know people like Ian uh, come in and people like uh, Janine are able to sort of like hijack the baby show and just start moving on a completely different track uh, but like, that all of the professional people that they come into contact with in real life a lot of these professional people should just be like you can't be this stupid but but they're not. They're just kind of like trying to... A lot of the time they're just kind of schmoozing, like they're seeing dollar signs here. And that's the problem. I think with you, people kind of have to grasp that if you are going to be incredibly talented at something and really dedicate your life to it, if you are going to put all of your skill points into being superb at playing music, for mm. example, there's going to be other stuff that you just can't do, that you yeah. just haven't got the headspace for. Which includes looking up after yourself 
absolutely. Many cases. But then that means and that tidying you, up after yourself. The way it tends to be framed and things like this is that you then end up with this. Um, uh, retinue of people who do all of those tasks for you but mm. then they depend on you continuing to be worshipped and bringing in all the money yeah so when things things hit hard times your support network drains away and mm. you're left with less and less which Absolutely. seems to be which the, is the where pu- the fall off the cliff tends to yeah. come that level of mundanity that they capture feels like such a cornerstone of why this movie works like mm. growing out of that that brief not even really encounter that Christopher Guest had. I'm just like, you know, where's my base? Is it in the room? Is it not in the room? <laughs> and and just that that kind of slice of life that you that you don't necessarily see or even think about when you're thinking about uh, rock stars or, or music legends or celebrities or anything like that. Um, but just just the way they capture the the just banal kind of idiocy, but also um, how. Just it, it makes it feel more genuine and also funny and humanizes everyone, even if it's just something small, like you said, him him missing the not being able to get back up because he's kind of getting on in years or he can't even uh, to speak to what Sharon was saying. He can't even make a fucking sandwich. Like, he, can't, <laughs> he can't fold meat so that it will fit on bread. Just and keep he just on freaking folding. out. Folding and folding. <laughs> just, <laughs> you just, just keep folding it. And then you end up with that. <laughs> and it's a disaster. You've got nothing in here. It's just, it's, <laughs> Uh, if I could just throw something quickly on top there, I actually I spent ten years managing bars, restaurants, and nightclubs, and for a while as manager of a, as like a jazz blues nightclub, and we did a lot of live bands, and I can attest to the monotony running side by side with the utter ludicrous behaviour of some of these guys is absolutely true to life. Some of them really are like kids. You have to hold the hand, show them to the stage. The, the, the guitars aren't working. You've got to go, you've got to plug it in, mate, and you're supposed to be the pro. And you have to, they, 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 they capture the real-life monotony of it alongside the um, ridiculousness very, very well. Just quickly mention the Judas Priest thing. There's something I, I read that um, Rob Reiner actually approached Judas Priest, and they invited him to come and watch them play to try and get an idea of the, oh, of the band. Nice. And, he actually, and he couldn't, um, but he literally said he couldn't stay in the room. He said it was hurting his chest to be in the room, and that's where he got the idea for... Uh, Britain's loudest Britain's band. Britain's loudest band. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't stay in the room with this noise. It's just hurting me. <laughs> One assumes Judas Priest weren't quite as punctual as Spinal Tap, though. <laughs> in ancient times, hundreds of years before the dawn of history, lived a strange race of people, the Druids. something about that mundane ludicrousness in Spinal Tap, that whole kind of, like, the the passing out of the, like, you know, this is my designs for you guys to look like your star signs. Mm. The Stonehenge Monument 
built 11 inches high. 18. 18 inches high rather than 18 feet high because Nigel doesn't understand the difference between feet and inches in the symbols. It's that level of we're not going to question at the points in between and this actually is going to get done. That is hilarious and a silly exaggeration of an industry that we assume has to be well organised or it wouldn't keep going. And yet if you look into things like the organisation of the Fire Festival, some of the decisions made there are dumber than things Spinal Tap would dream up. You know, it was fraud, but it didn't even have the good graces to be competent fraud. I suppose the most comforting thought you can derive from this is a mantra often utilised by Mikey Newman of Filmjoy, no one knows what they're doing. And again, that's one of the things I find comforting about Spinal Tap. It reminds us that beyond our delusions of propriety, maturity, self-possession, mastery of your place in society, in the words of Dylan Moran, adults are just tall children that earn money. think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. All right? That tended to understate the hugeness of the object. I really think you're just making a much too big a thing out of it. Making a big thing out of it would have been a good idea. Nigel gave me a drawing that said 18 inches. All right? I know he did, and that's what now, I'm talking about. he knows the difference between feet and inches is not my problem. I do what I'm told. But you're not as confused as him, are you? I mean, it's not your job to be as confused as Nigel is. It's my job to do what I'm asked to do by the creative element of this band. And that's what I did. The Come audience on. were laughing. So it became a comedy number, right? Yes, it did. Yes, it fucking well did. And it was not pleasant to be part of the comedy on stage. Backstage, perhaps, it was very amusing. Well, maybe we just fix the choreography and keep the dwarf clear. What do you mean? So we'll trod upon it. Okay, uh, Derek Smalls, uh, the, the lukewarm water of the group, uh, possibly the most familiar voice in tap since being Harry Shearer. He's uh, Monty Burns in The Simpsons, he's Seymour Skinner, he's uh, Wayland Smithers, which means all of those Smithers and Burns conversations are Harry talking to himself. Yeah, he does it in one take, apparently. Oh, seriously? Yeah, I read that today. Yeah, apparently you can do it just as in, on one go, in one go. People consider you something of an ogre. I ought to club them and eat their bones. <laughs> <laughs> I loved his quote about uh, when I was reading the same thing. He says, um, many people make the mistake of adulterating their evil. Never adulterate your evil. <laughs> <laughs> He's the mellow rocker who quietly enjoys the lifestyle and isn't interested in the histrionics. We're very lucky in a sense that We've got two visionaries in the band. You know, David right. and Nigel are both like, uh, like poets, you know, like Shelley or Byron, people like that. The two totally distinct types of visionaries. It's like fire and ice, basically, you see. You know, I feel my role is to, in the band is to be kind of in the middle of that, kind of like lukewarm water, in a sense. And I realised while watching this that um, something about the 
production of this film has meant that I didn't delve into the making of it much at all. So if anyone did, please tell us about it because I kind of went along with the whole this is like they, we are being presented with real people. Which they do sustain, even yeah. through the commentary, they do it in character. The sustain, listen to it. I'm not hearing anything. So I don't know, the really apart from that little anecdote I gave before about um, uh, the, the, the base, the, the, the lost base, I don't know much about how this came into being. Does anyone know? Um, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, so um, they, they came up with it basically on the spot. They were doing a, a, a skit for Saturday Night Live, apparently, and... Thing, and the, like things really did start going wrong, and they just slipped into these stupid voices and started doing it on stage. Um, he was already using um, what well, Christopher Guest was already using the Nigel Tufnell moniker for a different music-related bit mm. for Saturday Night Live, and it just and everyone laughed so hard at these voices they were putting on, they making it up. They decided to just and they just kept running with it, and they're doing it, doing it as little skits here and there. And then they decided to let's you know let's um, do. And I, one thing was interesting. They said they didn't set out to make a comedy. They wanted to make a a rock and roll. Doc, you know, mockumentary, and they just said we kind of knew it was inevitable it would turn out to be a funny film just because we're funny people, funny people, but we didn't actually set out to make a comedy. Hmm. So, yeah, and yet it ended up as one of the, the funniest films of all time. Yeah, yeah. As in, in terms of like, you can't measure these on a laughometer, but it constantly turns up on lists, and uh, it is it's well recognised and respected. Hey, 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 Bill and Marty here, and we're backstage rapping with a tap, fellas. I'm going to hit you with a phrase that has dogged you throughout your career: "Washed up." Yes, that's Harry Shearer interviewing himself. He also plays the radio DJ playing cups and cakes in the film. He's got a great DJ voice. He was Handsome Dan in Wayne's World 2. Uh-huh. You're not really listening to me, are you? Uh-huh. I mean, I could say anything right now, like, you're a complete tool. Mm-hmm. But back to The Simpsons. Sorry, that was a tangent within a tangent. Uh-huh. Yet here you are, among the top 105 concert acts today. What's your secret, guys? Well, after the Berlin Wall fell out, our record started selling on the dismal side of the Iron Curtain, and naturally, that gave us a boost. We're very big in Bulgaria, and uh, what's his name? Yadagaria. Hungary, yeah, whatever. I can't think of anyone who's benefited more from the death of communism than us. Well, maybe the people who actually live in the communist countries. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I bet you're right. Yeah, on the other hand, uh, each of us just bought our own soccer team. <laughs> How many Hungarians can say that, eh? Say, guys, I wonder if you'd mind recording a couple of promos for us. Well, like what? Uh, maybe you could say, nobody rocks like Bill and Marty on KBBL. Well, we don't know that, do we? What if somebody rocks as good as you? Or better. I mean, we don't want to look stupid. Okay, we can respect that. How about rock-a-doodle-doo, you're listening to Bill and Marty? Yeah, sure. Okay. Right. That's good. Yeah. Derek Smalls himself has this, you know, really kind of lovely, calming presence throughout the film. He never gets nasty. He, he uh, <laughs> you know, tends to sort of go with the flow. But he still has kind of a, an intention to be able to move forward. Like the, Their drummer, what's his name? Their, their current you? drummer. Oh, Stumpy Viv Joe? Savage or something? No, no, no. It's, a, it's not the current one. Oh, no, I can't, I can't remember. Stumpy Joe died, didn't he? Difficult to remember when, when, who our drummers are any given day. Talk a little bit about the history of the group. I understand, Nigel, you and David originally started the band uh, back in, when was it, 1964? Well, before that, we were in different groups. I was in a group called The Creatures, which was a skiffle group. I was in Lovely Lads. Yeah. And then we looked at each other and said, so well, we might as well not? join up, you know, in there. So we became uh, the originals, right. and uh, we had to change our name, actually. Well, there's, a, there's another group in the East End called the Originals, and uh, we had to rename ourselves. And the new Originals. New Originals, yeah. and then 
they became the regulars. They changed their name back to the regulars, and we thought, well, we could, we could go back to the originals about what's the point. We became the Thamesmen at that point. Your first drummer was... Uh, the Peeps. John Stumpy Peeps. Oh, yeah. Great, great uh, tall, blonde geek with glasses. John Stumpy Peeps was played by Ed Begley Jr., who turns up in various Christopher Guest films as the very patient hotel manager in Best in Show. Very kind as well. Yes. What are you, a wizard, a genius? What did you tell me that before? You Thanks for your help, you stupid hotel manager! But also Stan Sitwell from Arrested Development, the, uh, again, very kind businessman with alopecia, which entailed stick-on eyebrows. What the hell just fell off your face? One of this guy's eyebrows just fell on the bowl of candy beans. I always carry a spare. Well, I hope you also carry a spare bowl of candy beans. Joe, I'm very impressed with the offer. And I'm going to run it upstairs, see what kind of reaction it gets. So to speak. Arrested Development owes an absolute debt to This Is Spinal Tap and the further films of Christopher Guest. Uh, good drama. Great look. Good drama. Good, yeah, good yeah, drama. Yeah, fine. What happened to him? He died. He, he died in a bizarre gardening accident some years back. It's really one of those things It was, you know, the authorities said, you know, best leave it. It's yeah. not unsolved, yeah. really, you know. And he was replaced by uh, Stumpy Joe. Eric Stumpy Eric Joe Child. Childs. Yes. And Eric. what happened to Stumpy Joe? Well, uh, it's not a very pleasant story, but no. um, He's, uh, he, he died. Uh, he choked on uh, the, the the official explanation was he choked on vomit. It's actually he uh, away. was actually someone else's vomit. It's not exactly. <laughs> you know, there's no real. Well, they can't yeah, prove still... whose vomit it was. They never. They don't have no, facilities in Scotland no Yard to, to print You can't really dust for vomit. Um, but yeah, their the, the drummer and keyboardist seem to be kind of out of uh, you know out of it for most of the time, somewhat um, heavily sedated. But uh, Derek has a kind of um, avuncular atmosphere around him. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. yeah, he released an album in 2018. There's something else I found today called Smalls Change, Meditation on Aging, a, a solo uh, acoustic album by Shearer as Derek Small. So I'm going to check nice. that. Yeah, just two years ago. I'd say the best part of um, uh, the return of Spinal Tap um, sort of shortish, uh, like hour-long straight-to-DVD movie was... Uh, his relationship with his dad, who I think does plumbing supplies or something, and, and they just kind of improvised driving around in a Bedford van, um, fixing people's stuff, uh, which was neat. Although the the song "Break Like the Wind," I think is is a you know a- excellent piece of music. It's good, it's good punch that as well, isn't it? It's hard to Indeed, yeah. <laughs> disagree with that. We are the children who grew too fast. We are. The dust of a future past We raise our voices in the Sad. We are the thumb. 
It's all genuinely on point for whatever genre it is they're doing, and mm. they are obviously talented musicians in their own right. Yeah, but it's like it's like that's the thing about parody and and to an extent satire. You you kind of have to know the thing that you're parodying mm. well enough for it to feel authentic, for it to be funny. Otherwise, you're just taking the piss, and it's it becomes mean spirited. Yeah. Yeah, actually, Alex, did we had, we had a chat a while ago talking about how I, I started it talking about John Borman with Excalibur and Exorcist Two and stuff, and authors looking down on the material they're working with. Is that mm, links into being that? Being embarrassed with what you're yeah, you given you to have, handle. Yeah, you, you have even if you're going to send it up, or even if you're going to try and invert it or whatever, you've got to love it at heart, or at least be invested in it in some way, respect it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a level of familiarity that you that you have to have, especially if you're making a mockumentary. You're trying to even though you're you're trying to do something that's very exaggerated and, and false, but you want it to you want it to have a certain level of verisimilitude. Um, it's it you're you're not going to have good satire if you don't have a good handle on what it is you're satirizing. This is why Weird Al's stuff works because he's a genuinely talented musician. And Spinal Tap songs are like they're not great songs, but they're really good examples of what songs by a band like this would be. Like, they're writing this fine line between really goofy, the, just the way they, you know, Sex Farm, just as a song. It's <laughs> ridiculous. But, well, that was but, taking the, the, uh, the idea of uh, sexuality and the whole debate around sexuality and sort of putting it on a farm. We're taking exactly. a sophisticated look at sex on a, on a farm. <laughs> but, but then you but then you listen to that, and, you know, they're genuinely talented singers. It's it's the same reason that, like, A Mighty Wind works, because yeah. the, the the music, it's it's absolutely exaggerated and ridiculous, but it feels right for, for what they're doing. And, and there are times when, um, not just, like, when Nigel's doing the, uh, the piano bits, but there are times when you're like really getting into it, like that beginning, that like the Stonehenge gag works so well because while Nigel's narration is is kind of ridiculous, like this, this is a twelve year old's idea of what a cool soliloquy during a rock song would sound like. <laughs> <laughs> but but you're you're genuinely getting into that too. It's like yeah, man, this is pretty cool. And then oh, there there it is. Because without without a decent song to back it up. Again, like the the levels to which Reiner goes to extend a gag, um, it it doesn't work without something to be genuinely engaging to sustain it. What they do have is that they're really catchy. Mm. There is that, and so, I think yeah. that the fact that they don't do that thing which uh, which rock music does have a tendency to do, which is pick up on that teenage boy anger. There's yeah. there's the teenage boy <laughs> drooling need girls thing Aerosmith um, Aerosmith thank you <laughs> <laughs> but the, but there isn't the uh, the the anger and the fury and the I hate my dad that kind of tends to manifest in the, yeah. the rock as it became in the early 2000s it's all about the he says, she says 
In fact, another comedy act, lounge singer Richard Cheese, makes his bread and butter singing extremely angry, violent songs in a cheery Vegas manner. We've all felt like shit and been treated like shit, right, ladies and gentlemen? All those motherfuckers, they want to step up. I hope you know, I pack a chainsaw. Or even in the early 80s, because this oh, is yeah, no, this isn't necessarily... 80s, 80s, 90s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this isn't necessarily drawing a lot from something like the decline of Western civilization, but that that did release just like a little bit before this comes out. And, you know, one is an actual documentary and one is covering a very different subject. But you're you're still getting some of the same flavor in terms of Mm. how do you put this sort of um, look at music on film in a somewhat non-fiction style if even if it is mm. still fictitious and there is a lot of room in rock and roll for some really toxic nastiness and there there was a lot of anger that was starting to bubble up during that time as as punk was really starting to take over but but spinal tap still feels weirdly wholesome mm. even though they're sexist goofuses because it, it's oh what's wrong again, with sexy <laughs> sexist <laughs> Oh, you said, oh, they twisted it. Yeah, we should have. Oh, we should have thought of that. Such a fine line between stupid and, and clever. <laughs> clever. <laughs> and part of what makes that work is is Derek Smalls because he's almost like this this Ringo esque character. They they do pull from a lot mm. of different contemporary rock bands, but they're also just in very general like this is the story of rock music. They're pulling mythology more or less from a whole bunch of different groups because mm. i mean janine is not trying to denigrate anyone but janine is sort of positioned as the yoko oh, of, yeah. of the no, group this is and, def- there is a and, huge beatles energy in this whole thing they're missing oh, it, a it george is. but uh, <laughs> but yeah they, they are but, the rest but but he's you know and and derek smalls is probably the closest counterpart that you know because they'll they'll blend certain people together especially for for david and nigel but mm. but derek is very clearly he's just kind of like the ringo guy mm. you know they're they're practically doing a freeform version of like octopus garden at the puppet show <laughs> <laughs> i'll tell you what we're gonna have to do well jazz odyssey we're not going about to do a freeform jazz uh, exploration in front of uh, a festival crowd. You are witnesses at the new birth of Spinal Tap Mark II. Hope you enjoy our new direction. There's this strange combination in in Reiner's um, Spinal Tap specifically, and it comes across a little bit in in Guest's sort of thematic follow-up work, is he feels like he covers a lot more time during the course of the film than 80 minutes would allow, because this this thing just flies by, but it's also got this like big cross country tour and we're following them through months and we get flashbacks to, to, to years and decades of history that it ends up feeling like this oddly large experience that we're having. And we get, we get a full view of these characters, even though we're spending a very short amount of time with them, but we still get more than enough of their dynamics without wallowing in the way you were talking about. Hey, Mm. Alex, the, some of the arguments go on and on and some of the, 
some of the ways that Nigel and Janine Buttheads, like you get so much of the dynamics and history of those two characters in just the way the camera focuses on Christopher Guest's face when they first say Janine's name. And you just see the slight shift in his expression of, oh, fuck, I'm going to have to deal with this now. So she's just going to drop a few things off and then go, all right, now she's coming with us for the whole tour. <laughs> it's like, welp. <laughs> and it's almost like you can see an act change just in the way his his entire demeanor shifts. And and like you said, I, I agree. Like it, it would be easy for this to turn just a, a little bit too bitter for it to be as as enjoyable as it is. This is almost like a and d campaign, as in the tour is a quest, only they don't have a mentor, there's no Gandalf there, and their DM is insane. <laughs> they're, they're like, at, the further they go, the more strained everything is, and the, the less resources they have. They're getting worn down by the, the, the shit that happens to them. When they, their Smell the Glove album finally comes out, and it's just black none more black and it's almost the most crucifying moment is is one of the least witnessed moments for them the sitting in a record store for a crowd that aren't there and no one's coming and they didn't get the airplay and it didn't really play out the way they, they wanted it to that feels like the death knell for the band like if no one's showing up then what's the point of doing all this? And and Ian talking about the uh, stadiums being much, much smaller and uh, just them having a... Uh, his words are a more select audience. Yeah, the theatre's becoming more selected. <laughs> and in that, it's in those moments you can see that raw pain on David's face. Same with the, where, where are they now far on the radio. You can see it really cutting deep when those, these things happen. <laughs> oh, that's actually one of the other really good um, uh, deleted scenes. One fan comes along and uh, asks them to uh, uh, sign... A copy of Smell the Glove, and they do, and then he sort of stares blankly at the black slate in front of him and can't see the writing. And they they start ordering him to tilt it in the light so that he can see the writing <laughs> that cannot be seen. <laughs> To go back to their relationship with sexuality and with women, the like this 
ran the risk of, of feeling really fucking uncomfortable uh, you know, in, in the modern era. It's, it's 40 years old now, thereabouts. And they're singing songs that definitely denigrate women and that definitely convey to a, a, an audience of pale young boys... Yeah, this is fine. This is, uh, you know, a, a, a fine way to uh, see women. We've got Smell the Glove as an album. We've got Big Bottom, Sex Farm, and then later on, Bitch School. And, and, some, uh, <laughs> yeah, and some of the lyrics in those talk about mud flaps, my girl's got them. Yeah. That, 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 that line doesn't age well. <laughs> yeah. But, but it seems like they're actually, like, the actual target of all of this is them for possessing these views and maintaining them and not really even questioning them to the point where when they actually get smelled the glove shoved back in their faces so to speak and told this doesn't work in 1982 you should have seen the cover they wanted to do wasn't a glove um their confusion there is the gag Mm. that it's it's it, it is pointing at this kind of behavior and going this is fucking ridiculous and incredibly childish. There's also a thing, and and I am not, by the way, about to make excuses for any of this <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But I think there is um, there's a, a a skill in portraying it the way that uh, that Reiner does, which is that they are hugely, hugely sexist but they are not particularly misogynistic. There is not that sort of underpinning hatred of women or or desperation to control women. It's just a, we really want sex. It's so childish. Most metal music isn't about trying to control women, Um, but it it does tend to sort of uh, say, women, you are this kind of object for us mm. and that's good absolutely and it's but it's it just i don't know i don't know quite how to explain it. it i suppose because you see them interacting with actual women so rarely but when they do it's bobby fleckman telling them that they haven't got a clue and she's the one with all the the kind of control of the situation and telling them that what they can and can't do and and that kind of stuff it's also probably worth mentioning that fat bottom girls uh, released by queen in 1978 four years before this i've always considered to be kind of worship mm. yeah <laughs> kind of like you know That's not denigrating. That uh, it's uh, honestly the the talk about mud flaps. My girl's got them. That's said with pride. Yeah. The <laughs> so you could take one reading of Big Bottom as uh, being in the same stable as Fat Bottom Girls Absolutely. and empowering. I, I do anyway. Oh, you could also put it in the same <laughs> same stable as if it's a kind of a pyramid with the top one being Baby Got Back by Sir Mixalot. <laughs> yeah. However, by the way, I am not at this point saying that all women are obliged to accept this. Yeah. Kind of attitude by any means. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's it's merely an angle and a perspective on it. You, by all means, feel offended as fuck by it if you like. 
But the movie really does call it shot when it when it has them talking about the the other album of the guy tied down. It's like that's that's what this movie is doing. That's the entire film of it is making them the butt of the joke, and that's why they're able to sort of get away with it. Um, the other the other thing that they were doing when you're talking about how they interact with other female characters, it would have been easy for so much of the tension between Nigel and Janine to be you know toxic or sexist, as opposed to the way that it's now intentional or not it comes across more because Nigel's a bit jealous. Like they, there's, there's definitely some, I'm maybe not even romantic, but there's definitely a, a possessive partnership between David and Nigel that Nigel kind of feels encroached upon whenever Janine's part of the situation. And that's very clearly, again, not, they, they never like come out and spell it out, but everything about their attitudes, that's what it speaks to as opposed to just He's mad because she woman and she don't belong in woman not belong space. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's at, at least that's that's my reading of it. Yeah, and I, I think it also it characterizes the two of them quite well in the sense that they've been friends for so long and they've known each other for for such a long time, and Nigel doesn't seem to be able to sustain close relationships with more than one or two people at a time. So he just hasn't built up a network with anyone else, whereas Dave can, and so he's been able to build up whatever he's got with Janine. He seems to be the one who talks to Derek more than uh, than Nigel does, but it, it just it it marks the difference between them in that way as well. It's funny you say that. I can't think of. I'm now trying to think of scenes between Nigel and Derek, and there aren't many. Are there any? Almost none. Where it's just the two. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, no, no, that it's uh, Derek talks a lot more to David mm. when they're discussing Saucy Jack and various other projects that they want to pursue. That was actually that's a sweet scene because they're actually starting to approach maturity. They're starting to realize, oh hey, this this fantasy we were indulging in of being adored by pale young boys. Well, we've got uh, you know armadillos in our trousers. Um, <laughs> Which, by the way, the cucumber. The guys. whole thing is a great big fucking lie. Like it's they don't have armadillos in their trousers. They have cucumbers covered. At least Derek does uh, covered in uh, tin foil, betraying the um, the illusory aspects of just this performance they're putting on. But the chasing of that and the being able to just sort of set that down and go, maybe this is really the end. And then it's kind of it's. It's happy, but it's a big backslide at the end (laughs) when they end up in Japan being adored by young Japanese boys. Um, And at the same time, like they're just doing the same thing again. They start with the same song, Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You. They go, they have learned nothing. (laughs) David, we had a 15 year ride, mate. I mean, who wants to be a fucking 45-year-old rock and roller farting around in front of people yes, less than their so age, true. So true, yeah. cranking out some kind of mediocre, head-banging bullshit, you know, yeah. that we've forgotten? That we've been, it's beneath us. That's right. right. Who wants to Absolutely see Absolutely right. No, I mean, mate. we can take all those projects that we thought, you know, we didn't have time oh, for. Oh, there's dozens. There's so you many know, we didn't have time for them because of Tap and, and bring them back what to life, maybe. Do you remember what we were... Do you remember the at project? The Luton, at the Luton Palace, we were yes. talking about a rock musical based on the life of Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Right. Saucy Jack. Saucy Jack. Saucy Now's Jack. the time to do you're that. You're a naughty one. Saucy, Saucy Jack. Jack. You're a haughty one. Saucy Jack. Right. But it's a freeing up, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's all this free time. Suddenly time is so it's, elastic. It's a gift. It's a gift of freedom. I've always, wanted, I've always wanted to do a collection of my acoustic numbers with the London Philharmonic, as you know. 
we're lucky. Yeah. I mean, people should, people should be envying us, you know. I envy us. Yeah. I do. Me too. I'm your tree, big and real. I'm your eyes when you must steal. I'm your pain when you can't feel. It's almost like they're they're about to catch up to the the tale of their own nostalgia mm. because if you if you did something like this now the the amount of recycling that we do for things in the that thirty year period that always comes back around again um, that that would almost certainly be a part of a group that has been around as long as Spinal Tap has because that didn't necessarily happen in the music industry quite as much back in the 80s but now we recycle stuff from the 80s all the time and it's it's almost like spinal taps like about to catch up you know with being a slightly different audience slightly younger mm. like they're we're big in japan it's almost like they're about to catch their own nostalgia wave um and it, it is weirdly tragic it's also it's also a really fun reversal of the chat between david and and derek because they are trying to approach maturity, but they're also like very clearly lying to themselves. Of like, oh, we're we're free now. I I feel I feel envious of us. I envious. Yeah, I mean, it, I am because <laughs> yeah, you know because they they are trying to, but it but it's also very clear that they're they're being dishonest with themselves because they're at this just crushing low point of this this nothing of an after party for a tour that collapsed in an album that went nowhere yeah <laughs> that um that 30 year cycle thing that you mentioned is that because the people who love those things as kids are now professionals in the industry and desperate to introduce that stuff to their own kids yes <laughs> maybe <laughs> Also, I feel like uh, any because they sluiced off all the uh, unpleasantness uh, in, into the uh, deleted scenes. Any nastiness that the uh, guys kind of display t- tends to be somewhat um, mitigated by the presence of Ian. Their uh, is he a manager? He's their manager, and he is mm-hmm. so mean and so twisted and so bitter that he makes anybody else seem just sweet, gentle. And calm yeah, comparison. Ian is a piece of shit. He really <laughs> is. This next bit kind of cements for me how horrible Ian is. It's testament to the dignity of Paul Benedict as the receptionist getting the audience on side with him at this horrible customer. Also, a little glance from his manager that I interpret as a sympathetic, you shouldn't have to put up with this shit. Gentlemen, we have a slight problem with your reservation. Nothing serious, I'm afraid. Uh, slight. Uh, you wanted seven uh, suites. Seven suites. Yes, he, we, he mistakenly put you on the seventh floor with one suite. However, That's considerably more than minor. Uh, well, it's a good-sized room, sir. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a king leisure. We can get you yeah. a... Seven... How are we going to get 14 people in a king leisure bed? Oh, no. Don't tempt me, sir. Have a good no. time. We, right. we, yeah. we, we will yeah. Welcome, gentlemen. Very attractive hey, hey, listen, listen, listen to me. Yes, we want these suites and we want them now, okay? These people are tired. Yes, sir. We, we can have, have your reader. And perhaps you can help Give me a hand, please. Yeah. Well, um, I'll tell you what, okay? This twisted old fruit here tells me that you just as God made my reservation. You can't always get a bead on a person when things are going great for them. It's much easier to see their character revealed when things are going very wrong. 
Side note as well, like when when he and Janine are fighting, I was like, this is like Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. Whoever wins, we lose. I hate these fucking two. I I was trying to find nice things to say about Janine because it's like, as you say, she is positioned as Yoko. Really, when she comes in, she starts to kind of take control. You you're kind of on. Uh, Nigel's side because she's shrill and not like she herself is not especially f- all credit to the uh, the actress um, June Chadwick uh, who who had kind of a thankless role to be the Yoko in this particular scenario. She's also she also turns up when things start to go bad, so there is an inevitable sort of associating that things going wrong with her resting more and more control from uh, Ian. And well, you, from you, kind of, you kind of you kind of watch David let it happen, don't you? You, yeah. you watch him give up, give away his dream to her without even putting up a fight, yeah. and that's, he can he can see that's frustrating everybody else. Yeah, and it's it's when um, they're having this heated argument, and David starts to say something, and she shouts "Shut up!" at him in a kind of mummy's talking way, and it's like this is a really unhealthy relationship. I can't find anything good to say about Janine. And that's unfortunate because I wanted to at least play not so much devil's advocate there, but I always like to look for the good in people and I can't find anything in Ian and I can't find anything in her. They're both two hyper-controlling influences on the band. And at the end, you end up with both of them kind of grimly trying to stare each other out while Tapper now in in Japan trying to cope with, with, uh, with, with having these two... Like the two captains, both with a hand on the wheel. I think to an extent what the, the two of them represent is the inside and the outside of the industry that these guys are trying to negotiate their way through. Mm-hmm. Ian is the inside of the music industry. He's all the shit that goes on backstage that the band don't have to see because Ian is supposedly sorting it all out. Mm-hmm. He's all the backstabbing and the, the uh, debates and the negotiations and the things that go wrong and, and all the rest of it. And Janine is like... Like the outside of it, she kind of represents the rest of the world that they don't interact with all that much. Mm. And when she comes into the world that they're occupying, she doesn't really understand it. She doesn't kind of get that rock and roll thing. Exemplified by her line about it wasn't mixed right. It should have been in Dublin. Exactly. Dublin. She hasn't got a clue. <laughs> But that kind of that that means that the the influences that are kind of pulling them this way and that, and you're right about that whole thing about them being yanked backwards and forwards between the two of them. Yeah, um, especially David. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but Nigel that, just wishes that like they could be without Janine when things were better. But neither of them are what he's in this for, which is the music. Nigel represents the music, yeah. and really, that's you kind of sat there thinking, Dave, that's the direction you need to go kick these two to the curb yeah, and just honestly, hang out with Nigel the end should like a, a happier ending is they're singing a new song with Japanese influences that is also somewhat racist and uh, <laughs> that they're trying their best to appeal to this audience but it's like oh you really didn't need to uh, to go there for that one and that neither Janine nor Ian are present anymore and it's Absolutely. like we're now we're going to forge our own way and our way is is going to work and you're like listening to the music no it's really Do not, not. going to work <laughs> this and is the last the bit name again this is the last bit before the absolute collapse mm. but um like, yeah, either way I like I still like the ending of this and it's kind of perfect the, the way that it, it ends, the way it began, having learned nothing. It, it, it does feel like the backsliding into having both Ian and Janine there is, is just asking for trouble. It, while it's 
they've definitely learned nothing. The the real victory definitely comes from that emotional beat of just Nigel coming back to the band, mm. so that even if because while the while the ending is them playing the 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 stage show in Japan, the emotional climax is their last show not being a show that they play with just those those members of Spinal Tap. Like they they don't play it as a splintered band. Like they, yeah. he brings Nigel back up because. Like that was going to be their their final show, and and they play it together. So I mean, the the whole Japan thing is like it's. I almost look at it like more of just like an after gag of like, yeah, well, okay, I guess they're just gonna, you know, do this, and maybe they'll become a joke, or maybe they'll just fizzle out after this. But I mean, it doesn't even, you know, but that doesn't even matter to me quite so much because we did get to you know have that one last hurrah that were they were looking for, you know, because when, when Nigel says you know play a good show, it's like. That that genuinely feels good, and then they do, and it's all of them. So that's that's what I kind of take away, and then you know the rest of it again is just that that sort of thing that sometimes happens and is silly, and you know maybe it doesn't actually go anywhere, but eh, whatever. Mm. Cups and cakes, cups and cakes. Oh, what good things mother makes! You've got to take tea, won't you take it with me? What a gay time it will be! Cups and cakes, cups and cakes. Please make sure that nothing breaks. The china's so dear and the treacle so clear, and I'm glad that you are here. Milk and sugar, bread and jam. Yes, please, sir, and thank you, man. Here I am. I have a soft spot for cups and cakes. It sounds like the kind of whimsical nonsense that maybe Ringo would have come up with when George was doing Within You, Without You. I watched this uh, when I, for the first time when I was a teenager in the 90s and I just uh, I think I had it recommended to me in Neon Magazine's list of funniest movies so obviously those things are actually quite useful they turn you onto some unseen gems when I uh, encountered Bobby Fleckman played by Fran Drescher I was like shit is that Janice because I was watching a lot of Friends at the time oh my god Janice hi Janice is going to go away now <laughs> Oh, good. Joey's home now. This is so much fun. This is like a reunion in the hall. (laughs) And, you know, I realise in retrospect, uh, Maggie Wheeler doing Janice is totally doing Fran Drescher playing Bobby Fleckman. Oh, my God. You know, know, speaking of that, talking about art imitating life and all that, um, Bobby Fleckman reprised the character in the the sitcom The Nanny, which I've actually seen that before. Oh, shit, seriously? But apparently she's in it in season three. As Bobby Fleckman? As Bobby Fleckman, yeah. That's crazy. Now, during the Flower People period, who was your drummer? Stampy's replacement, Peter James Bond. He also died in mysterious circumstances. We were playing uh, a uh, festival, bl- jazz blues festival. Where was that? Well, blues like, jazz, really. Blues jazz festival. It was, the, it was the. Uh, it was in the Isle. Isle of Lucy. Lucy. The yeah. Isle of Lucy. Isle of Lucy. Jazz blues festival. And uh, it was tragic, really. He exploded on stage, just like that. He just went up. He just was like a flash of green light, 
and that was it. Nothing was left. It was face. Well, there was. It's that, true. This, it was this true. really did There was a little green globule on his drum seat. Like a stain, really. It was, it was a more of a stain than a globule, yeah. actually. And you know, it was several, you know, dozens of people spontaneously combust each year. It's just not really widely reported. Right. Yeah. Let's see any other any other characters we missed out. We missed out Artie Fufkin, who's uh, intent <laughs> on telling him just kick my ass. I think it's um. Well, we missed out rather an important character. First off, like Artie Fufkin fawns over the band and seems to be just inept at the same time. Like you know, your one job is to drum up in lo- local interest in this. And they end up sat there in this empty fucking record shop. And uh, in the deleted scenes, they go to a, a... He has real difficulty. He cracks an egg on his head in fury in the hotel room, uh, which just... Th- that sentence doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, just trying to get them to get up tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock to do a bit of a radio show. Uh, but yeah, in, in the film, there's, there's none of even that promotion. He seems to be a very well-observed caricature of a lot of people in that particular business, as does uh, Bobby. Schmoozing. But also, I admire the fact that Bobby is trying to wake them the fuck up at the risk of being rejected by the band regarding Smell the Glove. Like, rather than just going, oh, it's fine, and then just trying to shoot them out the door, mm. she's alerting them to the fact that it doesn't fucking work. Well, she I know she's a fairly small character, but I really, really like the way she's played. Ultimately, she knows this game. Yeah. She knows her shit far better than anybody else um, that has anything to do with Better than Ian... Certainly better than the band. Mm. She knows how this industry works. She knows how the game is played. And she demonstrates on several occasions that she is exceptionally skilled at playing it. She has a head on her shoulders. And and, uh, incredibly schmoozing and insincere though she can come off, I like her a hell of a lot more than Janine. And Yeah, she very very quickly shuts down, like, pierces the... the, um, this um, testosterone bubble of um, mm. Nigel and David as well. I think while she's talk- while they're talking about Snell the Glove, Nigel starts to talk and she just puts her hand on his mouth and says, "You don't, you, you don't, don't talk so you, much. You don't, you don't talk. You stand there." And he goes, <laughs> okay, okay. Like fourteen-year-old kid, he goes, "All right then." Which is a good way of dealing with Nigel in that, like you know, yeah, we will tell you when it's time for the wow factor. Hi. But um, listen, I really, I really do have to talk to you a bit about this, uh, yeah, this whole issue of the, uh, on your mind. the issue of the cover. Yeah. Um, we, uh, I mean, we feel, and it seems to be facts, that uh, the company is rather down on the cover. Is that the case? Yes. You can give it to me straight, you know. Listen, um, they don't like the cover. Uh-huh. They don't like well, the cover. Well, that's certainly straight. They find it very offensive and what? very sexist. Well, and what exactly do you find offensive? I mean, Ian, I mean, what's offensive you put a greased, naked woman yes. on all fours yes. with a dog collar with around dog her neck. And a leash. And a leash. And a man's arm extended out up to here, holding on to the leash and pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it. You don't find that offensive? No, You don't, don't. find that sexist? This is 1982, That's Bobby, right, it's on. 1982. Get out of the 60s. We don't have this mentality anymore. Well, you should Listen have seen the cover they wanted to do. I don't care what the they club, want. Believe See, me. now, this is something, Ian, that you're going to have to talk to your boys about. We're, we're certainly not laying down And I don't think that a sexy cover is the answer for why an album sells it doesn't sell, because you tell me the white album what was that there was nothing on that goddamn cover the one person we haven't mentioned who's kind of key to all this he informs upon the tone of the whole film marty de Berge, played by uh, rob reiner himself the director he's effectively coming across as a neophyte 
newcomer of a director. Like, he hasn't ever really attempted something this big before, and he doesn't know what's going to happen, and he kind of worships the band. He's never going to question them, and he's not the enemy the way that William is in Almost Famous. He's not going to challenge them. He's not going to ask them to justify themselves or to elaborate to a point where they actually make some kind of sense. He's just there feeding them questions and offering them platitudes. And it's this, it's a really kind of, it's a takedown of being uninquiring as a, a filmmaker, of being limp mm. and, uh, and not in having a critical eye for your subject matter. Yeah, which is what makes the, the kind of the follow-up bits where they're saying, oh, he did a total... Um, it's a frame the job, like the whole. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the they're the enraged about the fact that they look stupid. Look stupid, and he's like, <laughs> uh, "No." They were like, what? "I couldn't have done that if I tried." Like, yeah, they always show the nursing homes when they're on fire. They never show the nursing homes on the news when they're not on fire. <laughs> well, sometimes they do, um, but the. And yet, there are times when he actually does play hardball with them. The, the bit when he's um, confronting them with their crit- critics. In a way that seemingly for them, they've never encountered before. That mm. whole, you know, um, you know that they are uh, treading water in a sea of uh, retarded sexuality <laughs> and bad poetry. Well, that's just nitpicking, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> to be able to pass off something which is actually, like, it's, it's damning and it's well observed about them as just nitpicking is a really great way to not learn anything. Which, which is the one, what's the, what's the review he reads out when they say... Um, oh, Oh, that, that's a good one. I've heard that one before. <laughs> Shit sandwich, I think. Who put that one? <laughs> you can't put that one. <laughs> I did print that. Show me that. <laughs> I love the fact... I haven't mentioned it so far because I want to try and minimise it, but Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping is most definitely the modern-day equivalent of this. You said uh, earlier, if you did this now. They did. It was called Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping. I know you've True. seen it. <laughs> it's and hilarious. fucking it's hilarious. five people and a dog saw it. So... <laughs> Then we're as an indie. Yeah, uh, so uh, it's uh, the Lonely Island version of this, and it actually follows very closely, very faithfully, almost along the lines of this is Spinal Tap. The one major new change it makes to it, aside from the fact that it's uh, taking a, a different side of the industry, which is, um, I suppose, pop. Yeah. Hip hop, stadium pop. Yeah, stadium pop. Mm-hmm. Um, is that they get a lot of people to talk about the Style Boys and uh, Connor for real as though they are real people, and there are a lot of industry. It is the largest list of himself and herself at the end of any film. But there is a, a direct reference, just to, almost to just sort of show their hand and go, "Yeah, we know it's Spinal Tap. It's intentionally Spinal Tap," which is when uh, yeah. Connor is looking at his reviews and just goes, "So usually I don't like to read reviews." But I'm just excited. Like, I can't, I can't wait. I want to know how people feel about it, and I want to know how much they love it. So uh, here we go. Um, what do you see? Well, it's Pitchfork. It's, they gave it a negative review. They didn't like it? No, like, it's a negative four out of ten. Positive ten, I assume. Pitchfork can be kind of pretentious, though, so... I'm going to knock my hustle. Let's look at another one. Let's pull it up. Rolling Stone. Okay. Um, Out of four possible stars, Rolling Stone has given it the shit emoji. I can only assume it's a a mess up, you know? They must have had a 
a problem with their, um, no, this seems like the right score for how they're saying this. You know what? Let's just do a search. Conquest reveal. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Conquest a triumph. That's a good one. Let me read it. This is on The Onion. So, you know, mixed. Let's call it mixed reviews. But, yeah, no, he comes at them with the criticism and they don't like it much. So it almost seems like since that is placed at the beginning of the film, he, Marty, became wary of upsetting his, what he seems to see as hosts rather than subjects. And so he kind of, he plays softball with them from that point onwards and never asks them any question that would make them uncomfortable. Uh-huh. He yeah. never asks them questions directly when, that would make them uncomfortable, but for, for all that the, you know, some of the nastier edges are dumped into the deleted scenes, you still do get, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that they, you know, that it was a hit job, but he is still very honest about, like, the really raw pain that that will come up in some of those arguments or just again like the the genuine frustration of of trying to sort shit out on a tour that's falling down around your ears and and some of those arguments and and just little inconveniences they don't quite get to the point of you know cringe comedy or squirm stuff but it it comes close enough to feel like yeah man that does kind of suck even though he still obviously has affection for the band and their music you know he'll he'll definitely show them screwing up and being being kind of dumb like the the walk through backstage is a genuinely hilarious gag but it's also like the the biggest deflation that you could have of those guys right after they're like yeah let's put on the show we kept them waiting long enough all right and then and it's just like the, he just lets all the air out of the blues <laughs> as they're trying to find out how to get on the stage listen what the flower people say Ah, listen It's getting louder every day Listen It's like a bolt out of the blue Ah, listen It could be calling now for Just about time to thank all of our sponsors, and especially to name-check the top-tier Patreon supporters. So there's Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Haskell, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguera, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joker Seeger, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Orr, now that name seems familiar, Duran Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, James Enright, now that's Jarmus, Mark Lutsch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Leclerc, Aaron Le- I can't read that one. Kieran Dattler. Frankie Punzi. And Lorraine from Cheshire. 
That's right, isn't it? No, it's not. Well, either way, Lorraine, thank you wherever you're from. It's getting truer every day. Yeah, this is Spinal Tap as a piece of comedy is breathtakingly packed with moments. Like you could just watch it and smile broadly the whole way through, or you can watch it and laugh the whole way through. It's, I mean, obviously humor is subjective, but it, it, it really does have that kind of like wearing its preposterousness on its sleeve. The timing is exceptionally... I think it just comes down to the, the... It's very well edited, because most of this stuff isn't scripted. There's like there's one line which always stands out to me as being, like, you know, that was fairly well scripted, which is, I think we're all making a big thing out of this. Making a big thing out of it would have been a good idea. Um, it, it just... It feels like that's too perfect to have not been pre-prepared. But everything else just feels like it flows naturally, and it has this energy to it i suppose it manages to be simultaneously a perfect snapshot of a moment in history in terms of of the music Mm. business and also timeless in terms of these how people handle fame continue to surface over and over and over again the um the the desperation to look cool Mm. if you're famous at yeah. all times, and to never be seen to to, to feel to be weak or uh, well, or silly, it's, it's or the, the desperation to feel like you look cool. Yeah, and it actually doesn't really matter what other people think of you. I think that this is where they brought that in with pop star never stop never stopping quite well. Is that with the influx of the internet, Connor cannot get away from people's opinions of him. Mm. These guys walk around in bubble wrap as far as other people's opinions of yeah. them go. Yeah. Can't you see he's the man? Let me hear you applaud. He is more than a man. He's a shiny golden god. Like Tenacious D sort of stemmed from these guys as well. And I it's feel almost like, like Tenacious D is if they took the the silliness of Spinal Tap and intentionally made it even goofier. Yeah. And uh, obviously, uh, so uh, Lonely Island stemmed from this. Flight of the Concords, Paul and Storm. You know, it's there's a lot of pe- Tim Minchin has kind of a. Uh, a feel of this and it feels like they've they've had a, a genuine marked influence on the comedy industry where it intersects with music it's kind of amazing how much this this is sort of like permeated and reflected popular culture because so many different goofs and gags originate from this very short movie because there's you know everyone knows they take it to 11 like that's that's just shorthand for for this this film's attitude in a nutshell, um, but I, I actually saw this before I had much context for the music industry beyond being familiar with some of the classical periods of music that they're referencing here. And so, like as a as a fairly young like not I'm not even sure I was a teenager the first time I saw it, um, but just getting getting the bare narrative of that and then feeling like this was a window into something more because they do such a good job of capturing different experiences and, and eras of music and, and just the, the experience of going along with this band as they're on their last legs. And they're very good at communicating this. And then once you've 
done any amount of research both into the the direct references they're pulling from everything expands and then also if you just look at the at the people who are involved in what they've done since like i wasn't aware for the longest time that count rugen and nigel tufnell are the same guy mm. that he's chameleonic <laughs> like i said exactly yeah that was that was just mind-blowing but this this is such an odd singular work by reiner and and he's definitely had like a huge footprint on cinema but I think this really encapsulates what he does, which is make something that feels like this incredibly full, rich experience, even though it's fairly breezy and light. Like you never feel like you're you're having to eat your veggies, but you still feel like you get this very full thing. gentlemen's first visit to a military facility find me i start by saying how thrilled we are to have you here we are such fans of your music and all of your records i'm not speaking of yours personally but the whole genre the rock and roll and so many of the exciting things that are happening in music today and let me explain a bit about what's going on this is our monthly at ease weekend gives us a chance to kind of let down our hair although i see you all have a head start on it these haircuts wouldn't pass military muster, believe me. Although I shouldn't talk, I, my hair's getting a little shaggy too. Better not get too close to you, they'll think I'm part of the band. I'm joking, of course. Shall we go in and I'll show you around? Did you ever run into a musical group, works out of Kansas City, calls himself Four Jacks and a Jill? They've been at a Ramadi in there for about 18 months. If you're ever in Kansas City and you want to hear some good music, you might want to uh, drop by. The idea is if we can get it on and we uh, get it over with. And I have just one request, would you play a couple of slow numbers so I can dance? Working on a sex bomb, through your... And it never outstays. Like, I, you know, I've, I've said this multiple times. I cannot believe that this movie is like 84 minutes long because it feels so much more lived in and more uh, more of an experience than that. Yeah. And, and Rob Reiner does that. Like, I mean, Harry Met Sally is a movie that covers over a decade of people's lives as they move across the country and, and interact with different eras of history. And it's like, oh, no, that's 95 minutes. And it's like, the fuck? I was going to save you. a reference to When Harry Met Sally because it feels like we're now playing a chain game of Rob Reiner films. Because, of course, Billy Crystal and Bruno Kirby, uh, who's in that as well, turn up <laughs> yeah. in this. And it feels like the next Rob Reiner film we do might be When Harry Met Sally. Although, honestly, we should have done Misery a while ago because it is an exceptional portrait of how toxic fandom exists and how it treats creators. Uh, and they indeed, they, they don't realize they're toxic. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't get out of the cockatootie car! Well, the good news that's not actually good news is that'll probably stay like a really good fixed point for fandom for a oh, few more no. years. That's bad. That's very bad because it was like it was perfect in 2012, mm. but it's perfect now, and it's oh man. That's of course, Reiner is also Stand by Me, so uh, he is one of the few uh, guys, along with Frank Darabont and uh, Andy Machete, who can just do Stephen King. Okay, so we're going to finish now. 
And I think we're probably going to end up coming back and doing at least one Christopher Guest film. I think that'll about do it for Spinal Tap. Uh, we will be back with Christopher Guest at some point. And if you want a modern day equivalent, like I said, uh, seek you out, pop star, never stop, never stopping. We talk about it on our Lonely Island episode, uh, which if you haven't listened to that, the Lonely Island are fucking amazing. Honestly, the Lonely Island always seem to have a song which fits. I don't know why, but they, they do. Um, they're a legit band. So anyway, gentlemen, what pieces of work are you proud of and uh, that you would like these lovely people at home to check out? Uh, yes, you can find my uh, long-form stuff on normannerd.blogspot.com. By the time this drops, there will uh, likely be a... Uh, I've, I've just been doing stuff about the cartoon shows that we're introducing to Marion because there's no new movies out. So mm-hmm. this this is my life now, is trying to find things for for entertaining my child that are not just recycling Peppa Pig and Paw Patrol. So uh, we introduced her to Avatar The Last Airbender. We went through the entire series. Um, before that, we did uh, She-Ra. So I've got like a, a thing on my uh, on my side about um, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power and how it deals with uh, redemption. And we're going to be looking at Avatar The Last Airbender specifically and how it examines generational responsibility. Um, you can also... Uh, find me contributing to Synapse, that's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O, for uh, occasionally uh, contributing words to their uh, weekly DVD Two Cents column. Starting with The Last Airbender, or having her watch that when she's really, really young. We did that with Lyra, and we have found since then it's really fucking hard to top. It's it's good stuff, yeah. I, I also, oh, I, I forgot, um, I'm not sure this is dropped, but I, I recorded uh, something with the Geeks with Shields, who are um, uh, they, they do a lot of stuff with Chris Chipman. Um, he's he's a frequent guest of theirs, and we we actually talked about Avatar: The Last Airbender. Um, so if you look up Geeks with Shields, that's that's probably going to be out uh, pretty soon as well. And you can you can hear me ramble on about good cartoons that are good. All right then, uh, Nick, you have uh, well, you've been busy as hell for the past few months. Uh, what have you been working on? Well, I've been making the absolute best possible benefit I can from being on furlough and lockdown and all that. I started Midnight Movies as a written blog. I am looking very soon to try and convert that into some form of podcast, even if it is just a case of me reading it out loud, recording it, sort of like a sort of verbal essay, the same way you know you do at the start of some of your um, school movie stuff. Uh-huh. Um, been enjoying that. Uh-huh. Midnight Movies, I designed it. It started out basically as after my sister goes to bed, who I'm living with right now, and she works at nine, you know, nine in the morning. Uh-huh. I put on some random film I can find on streaming. I try and find films that are worthy of attention, that don't really get the spotlight they deserve, whether it's old classics or just weird new ones. Uh-huh. I try and stay away from the films that are already on on everyone's radar just to find some weird, interesting stuff. Uh-huh. Um, so I was keeping up with that. The one that I'm most excited about coming up with, as, as you know, I'm going to deep dive and... Um, jump into Nightbreed as hard as I can, which is uh, one of my old childhood favourites I haven't seen in a while. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, yeah, and then working on my first novel, again, inspired by your work on New Century. I have uh, Ink that I've written the first act, first, uh, you know, first third of, hoping to get that finished. If, if I can keep writing that at the same rate, I'm hoping to have that finished before lockdown ends and then see if we can go from there. And, yeah, enjoying doing that. Yeah, so I'm still trying to find my sort of voice and cement exactly what I want to do, but enjoying enjoying my creative output right now. So if anyone can check out Midnight Movies, that would be cool. If anyone wants any particular movies covered, I'm open to any suggestions. Uh, weirder the better. Joking aside and Harry Shearer radio voice aside, uh-huh. really do check out Nick's writing on uh, his Midnight Movies blog. The uh, address is in the show notes. He's a good writer. Uh-huh. I like his stuff. And I would say that if I didn't know him. 
He puts a lot of hard work into it. Oh, well, <laughs> work is hard. If you're on our Patreon, you'll be able to hear 25 minutes of deleted material from the This Is Spinal Tap show. Almost all of that is where we got too heavy and political, and I just wanted to give you folks a treat this week and just keep out of the news. Give you something light and fun. So all the heaviness is in the Cutting Class show. But you can also check out our revisit of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which has finally reached The Avengers. The component pieces for this came together in such a way that could not have been anticipated in terms of how successful it is in conveying the idea and the themes behind The Avengers as a whole. Yeah. That should pretty much do it. We will be back next week and the Steven Spielberg season continues with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Ooh. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. But do you feel that playing rock and roll music keeps you a child? That is, keeps you in a state of arrested development? No, no. No, I feel it's like, it's more like going going to a, a national park or something and there's you know they preserve the moose and that's that's my childhood up there on stage is that moose you know and, and so I, when you're playing I, you feel like a preserved moose on stage yeah i've been listening to the classics i belong to a uh, a great series um it's called the namesake series of cassettes mm-hmm. and they send you the works of famous authors done by actors with the same last name so i've got denim elliott uh, reading t.s elliott on this yeah. one well, and i've got yes I've got Danny Thomas doing A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas. And uh, next month it's um, McLean Stevenson reads Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, Treasure Island, I believe. That's uh, it's interesting. Yeah. It's fascinating. There's also something, uh, there's a shorter works of Washington Irving read by someone called Dr. J. Oh, that's Julius Irving. Oh, Julius Irving. There you go. Yeah, basketball in keeping with the series. Yeah, I well, <clears> didn't <throat> know that. Yeah. You like this? It's very nice. It looks like Halloween. This is exact, my exact inner structure. Done in a T-shirt. Exactly medically accurate. See? So in other words, if we were to take all your flesh and blood and every... Take all them up, off. You'd see exactly... This is what you'd see. It wouldn't see. be green, though. It is green. You know, see see how your blood looks blue? Yeah, well, that's just the vein. I mean, the color of the vein. I mean, the blood oh. is actually red. Oh, well, maybe it's not green. I don't know. Anyway, this is what we sleep in sometimes. Yeah. Dennis Eaton Hogg, the uh, president of Polymer Records, yeah. uh, was recently knighted. What were the circumstances surrounding his knighthood? The specific reason why he was knighted was uh, for the founding of Hogwood, which is um, a summer camp for uh, pale young boys. David St. Hoggins. I, I must admit, I've never heard anybody with that name. What's well, an unusual name? Well, he was an unusual saint. He's not a very well-known saint. Oh, there actually is, uh, there was oh, a St. Yes. Hubbins. That's right, yes. Yeah, what yes. was he the saint of? He was the patron saint of quality footwear. You play to predominantly uh, a predominantly a white audience. Do you feel your music is racist in any way? No, 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 no of course all. not. We, you know, we say we say love your brother. We don't say it really, but we don't literally say it. No, we don't say we it. We don't really literally all. mean it. No, we don't but believe we're not it racist. either. But that message should be clear anyway. We're anything but racist. You know, we've grown musically. I mean, you listen to some of the rubbish we did early on. It was stupid. Yeah. You know, now we're. I mean, a song like Sex Farm, we're taking a sophisticated view of the idea of sex, you know, and, and music. Putting it on a farm. Yeah. If I were to ask you what your philosophy of life or your creed, what would that be? 
Have a good time all the time. That's my philosophy, Marty. I believe virtually everything I read, and I think that is what makes me more of a selective human than someone who doesn't believe anything. Do you have a, a philosophy or a creed that you live by? Well, personally, I like to think about sex and drugs and rock and roll, you know, that's yeah. my life. If you were to have something written as your epitaph, here lies David St. Abbans. And why not? You feel that sums up your No, it's your the life. first thing I could think of. Oh, I it see. doesn't sum up anything, really. Yeah. I'm a real fish nut. I really like fish. What kind of fish? Well, in the United States, you have uh, cod. I like cod. And I love tuna. Those little cans you've got here, tuna fish. Yeah. No bones. Yeah. <laughs> if you could not play rock and roll, what would you do? I'd be a full-time dreamer. I'd probably get a bit stupid and start to make a fool of myself in public because there wouldn't be a stage to go on. Probably work with children. As long as there's, you know, sex and drugs, I can do without a rock and roll. Well, I suppose I could uh, work in a shop of some kind or, or do uh, freelance uh, selling of some sort of uh, product. You know, a like salesman, you think? A salesman, you like maybe in a uh, haberdasher or maybe like a, uh, um, a chapeau shop or something. You know, like, would you, what size do you wear, sir? And then you answer me. Uh, seven and a quarter. I think we have that. Something like that, I yeah. think I could do, yeah. You think you'd be happy doing no, something? No, we're like? all out. Do you wear black? See, that sort of thing, I think I could probably master up. Yeah. Do you think you'd be happy doing that? Well, I don't know. What, what, what are the hours? There's a pulse in the newborn sun A beat in the heat of noon There's a song as the day grows long the tempo in the tides of the moon It's all around us and it's everywhere 
You know, they like to eat. I've heard that mainly these large apes, they're bread eaters mainly. They go for, you know, any kind of bread is and yet it's strange, And yet they've developed, as a race, they've developed no baking skills. No, none whatsoever, no. And yet, but they still feed on bread primarily. Not a race, though, they're a genus. Well, some of them well, are smarter than culture. others. You can't really... They're a culture they're rather than, yeah. a, than a well, genus. They're a you know. genus and a subculture. Yeah. The culture right. is ape. They're not a counterculture. You think no, of the no. baboons as perhaps being a counterculture. Yeah. Yeah. The, smaller, the smaller monkeys are mainly bread eaters as well. You know, really? In the wild, yeah. They mostly that. eat bread, different types of Well, bread I knew a monk. I knew a, a bloke had a monk and ate soup. They ate onion soup with the cheese on top yeah, and the, yeah. the crumbly bits. I know, they like soup. But that's yeah. why they're... But they don't, that doesn't make them a soup-eating uh, species, does no. it? No. It's mostly why a are... nation of... It's a nation of peaceful sort of citizens, really, the gorilla. Yeah. You know, I've never been to Africa oh. proper, but I know that if I was to get in a, some sort of a uh, fight, that I could hold my own, I think, with a gorilla. Look at this one looking at us, look. He's just, it's like he's watching telly, you know? I've read about that they can talk. I mean, a few words, you know. Yes, please, little things like that, you know. Can I have do, more bread? Well, computers. they can do that. Don't they use computers? They can use computers, yeah. yeah. It's like they can't talk, but they can use computers. Well, they can also work. talk. They can no, talk, yeah. but they can't swear. They can use automated no, cash registers. No, they can't swear. Well. It's, not in their, it's not in their system. There's swear. a sort of blockage mechanism that keeps yeah. them. It's like the, it's called the anti-Tourette syndrome of the ape. Rubbish, one's been known to say, but that's about as severe rubbish. as it gets. That's not very that was, bad. That was, no, right. that was a request. Yeah. Load of rubbish. Well, we love you very much. Come to the show tonight.